You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Here was a woman who was electrocuted without any real evidence beyond perjury against her because of the hysteria of the time, the atmosphere of the Cold War. And as a historian, I think you can learn an awful lot by looking at an individual. This is Cold War Conversations. Ethel Rosenberg is a controversial figure and generates polarising views varying from an innocent mother caught up in Cold War hysteria to a willing and ruthless accomplice to her husband's Cold War espionage betraying secrets to the Soviets. Anne Seber's new book, Ethel Rosenberg, A Cold War Tragedy, also subtitled An American Tragedy in the United States, provides a more nuanced view of Ethel that is not just about innocence and guilt, but of a talented singer, a mother of two children betrayed by her family and the American judicial system. Age 37 in 1953, she became the first woman in American history to be executed for a crime other than murder. Whatever your views are about Ethel Rosenberg, this episode will detail more of who Ethel was and how the American judicial system was manipulated to ensure her conviction. If you've listened this far, I know you are enjoying the podcast, so I'm asking for a small monthly donation to support my work and allow me to continue producing the podcast. As a monthly supporter, you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Still not sure? Here's one of our listeners explaining why they financially support the Cold War Conversations podcast. Hi, I'm Sue Norton and I live in Dublin, Ireland. I love Cold War Conversations because it offers a huge variety of recollections and analysis of the Cold War years in a conversational way. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us and sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. So back to today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Anne Seba to our Cold War conversation. I've found so many people, and probably I was guilty of it as well all those years ago, who would say to me, oh, the Rosenbergs, as if they were one unit, the, the spies. And I've really tried to take apart that one unit and look at them separately. They were different people. There is no doubt that Julius was a spying recruiter. That means a spy. Let's not mince our words. He was um, sending information and gathering information And Ethel was a devoted wife and a devoted communist. She clearly supported, encouraged and approved of what her husband was doing. But 
I wanted to write the story of her life and not relitigate the Rosenberg trial. And I think that's a very important case to be made because here was a woman who was electrocuted without any real evidence beyond perjury against her because of the hysteria of the time, the atmosphere of the Cold War. And as a historian, I think you can learn an awful lot by looking at an individual. And when an individual comes up against these huge forces of history, what happens? So no wonder so many people have been engaged by the Rosenberg story, but not all of them know in detail or in truth what it is. They may know a fictional version. They may know a newspaper version. And I've tried very hard to tell the story of a woman born in 1915 who lived through so many key moments, um, you know, the Depression, World War Two, and then the Cold War, and then the Korean War, of course, just at the time of her trial. So there's really a lot to learn by investigating the story of Ethel Rosenberg, Ethel Nay Greenglass, and not just see her as one half of the Rosenbergs. Indeed. And and as you mentioned there, Greenglass, her maiden name, is obviously a key part of this story. The The whole relationship with her family, with her, her siblings there. Can you just describe a little bit around her, her early life and, and the family relationship? Yes, I, I agree with you. I mean, that's a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. So her father was Barney Greenglass, who came from Minsk. He was an immigrant who never really made good, but he, by all accounts, was very cheerful and happy with his lot. He had a, a machinist, a tailoring shop on the Lower East Side, 64 Sheriff Street, and behind the shop was um, his bedroom and then the kitchen. So it was a cold water tenement, uh, no windows. I mean, real poverty, uh, uh, an outside WC that you had to walk down the stairs to and go and get a bath in a bathhouse. It, it, it really was um, extreme poverty. However, his first wife died, leaving him with one son, and he quickly married again a woman called Tessie. And Tessie, who came from Galicia, which theoretically today is Austria, but it's also Eastern Europe. So Tessie, too, was not well educated. In fact, both her parents had degrees of illiteracy. They spoke Yiddish. Tessie made a bit more money by taking in rent from the tenement building, But otherwise, they really had very little money to spend beyond food. And life was hard washing in the same sink that you bathed in if you didn't go to the the bathhouse. So Ethel was born in 1915. She was um, Tessie's second child. And although she wanted more children, she had miscarriages and then finally gave birth in her late 30s, to a much-loved son, David. And David, or Doovie, as he became known, 
was absolutely adored by all the family. He was obviously a chubby cheek, curly haired baby, not hugely intelligent, but Ethel adored him too and became something of a surrogate mother. And so the relationship was very close when they were children. But Tessie, the mother, idolized David. She thought that education for girls was of no importance, whatever. Whether she was jealous of Ethel, because Ethel was the brightest of her three children. And she simply did not believe that there was any point in educating Ethel. That was expensive. So aged 15, when Ethel graduated from high school, she had to leave and couldn't go to college. Now, college for women was a new thing, but it was perfectly within Ethel's grasp. She was well equipped. Her results were perfectly good enough, but she was compelled to leave school to take up clerical and secretarial duties in order that David could still be educated and Ethel could hand over some money to her parents. However, Ethel's real love was music and singing and acting. And this is really where I began to see what an extraordinary person Ethel was, because she was an autodidact. She was self-educated. As I say, there was no money but she was determined to sing. And she took herself off to Carnegie Hall in the centre of Manhattan for an audition to sing with the very prestigious Schola Cantorum. And the first time she didn't get in because she wasn't trained. She couldn't do sightseeing. So what did she do? It was the depression and people were throwing furniture out onto the street to make room for more people to sleep. Ethel found a piano for almost nothing, took the piano home and taught herself to sightseeing. With great guts and determination, she went back to Carnegie Hall, re-auditioned and was accepted for this very prestigious choir. She was probably the youngest. She was still a teenager. So that starts to give you some insight into who this very determined and potentially talented young woman was and what she might have been if things had worked out differently. But at the same time that she was singing, she had to earn a job. She worked for a packing company. She was involved in a strike and um, the strike became ugly because this was a very new time for unions and she wanted the, the union to be recognized for better pay, better conditions. And she was one of those who lay down on the street on her raincoat to prevent lorries coming in. And of course, she was sacked and earned no money. But eventually, this newly established Labour Relations Board um, was convened to pronounce on the case and Ethel was found to be justified and she was paid her, her back pay. And so this was the other strand of her personality at this point. She found that actually social justice really mattered to her and that there were things you could achieve if you were determined enough. Ethel's eyes had been opened to another world. All of these factors were playing out in the lives of Ethel Rosenberg and, of course, thousands like her. But 
it's Ethel we're looking at because of what happened to her. But when you look at her early life, it's so tempting to say, how might things have gone in a different direction? She she meets Julius. How, how does she meet Julius? Well, probably 1936 is the key year, the key year for them, as of course it was the key year um, for the world, because it's when Hitler marches into the Rhineland and effectively ignores the Treaty of Versailles. And he isn't stopped. Arguably, that's the one moment when Hitler could have been stopped in his tracks. In Spain, there is a civil war. And the communists, of course, are are fighting to cling on to the power they've won in in the ballot box against the nationalists of, of Franco. And in France, you have a popular front government with a communist leader. Leon Blum puts together a communist front government. It doesn't last very long. So here's this year of absolute world turmoil. And Ethel and Julius joined the Communist Party in 1936, like so many others. Many of their friends went to fight in Spain. And Ethel continues singing a little bit because she loves it and because she's in demand at many workers' rallies trying to raise money. She's she's the go-to girl for somebody who'll sing the popular arias. And at one of these, she's a bit nervous. And Julius, who is a couple of years younger, meets her there and somehow steadies her nerves. And they become, as we would say today, they become an item almost immediately after that. How is their financial situation? Do they struggle financially? Has Julius has got a, a decent job? No, not at all. Um, so Julius needs to finish his college education before they can get married. Julius's parents like Ethel a lot and and think she's a good influence on on their son, who's a very clever boy. He studied for a while at a rabbinic college called the Yeshiva, and he might have been a rabbi, but he turned his back on religion and studied engineering at CCNY, City College. And City College was free, of course, and many Jews and many radicals went there. And Julius chose engineering probably because he thought it was vocational. He'd get a job not because he was so passionate about it. He failed one of his exams, Spanish, and it was Ethel who helped him, who typed up his notes at this point to help him learn more. And he did pass his exams and eventually they were married and they were married in, in a synagogue, although neither of them were religious Jews. That was the norm that would have pleased their families. And then the search for a job began. And Julius found it very hard, but he discovered that many of his contemporaries were getting government posts in Washington, that the government did not turn their back on Jews in the way that many other um, industrial organizations seemed to do, worried that these radical Jews from City College weren't a safe bet. So um, they sat the equivalent of what we would call the civil service exams. And of course, Ethel being so bright passed and got a good job and they went to Washington. And for a while, Ethel was the breadwinner there. 
and Julius followed. But when he got a job back in New York, they 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 returned to New York, and then they had to live uh, hand to mouth really. They shared a flat for a while with some friends in Brooklyn. They moved in with Julius's parents, which wasn't wonderful. And then um, eventually they found a, a very tiny sort of bed sitter in a not very salubrious part of the city. And that's where, where they lived. And Julius was working for the Army Signal Corps at that point, And he traveled a lot. And Ethel, once war broke out in 1941, at least once America joined the war, Ethel worked for a a voluntary organization, the Defense Council. So not much money is the answer to your question, but they managed. I think Julius comes to the attention of the authorities in 1941, and he's fired from one of his employers. Yes, for being a member of of the Communist Party. And of course, that's not illegal, but um, he and he manages to bluster his way back in and he's he's taken on again. At this point, uh, Russia has come into uh, the war as well. And there's almost like an about face in terms of its portrayal the uh, criticisms of the Soviet Union are, let's say, not highlighted as much as they had been prior to June 1941. Yes, of course, you know, it was it was a very difficult time to be a communist because in 1939, at the beginning of the war in Europe, there was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Agreement. So suddenly um, Russia was an ally of Nazi Germany. What were communists meant to do? Well, many communists did abandon the party. Julius and Ethel didn't. They bided their time. Um, But it was much more comfortable, of course, by 1941, as you rightly say, once um, that the the Soviet Nazi um, non-aggression pact is dismantled and Hitler marches into Germany and America joins the war after Pearl Harbor. And then, of course, uh, the Americans have a lot of backtracking to do. Suddenly, Russia is not only their ally, but there are a number of positive films that people go to to see actually all the wonderful things that the Soviet Union is doing and how it's fighting the brave fight for freedom. So a lot of people find themselves changing sides, but um, support for the Soviet Union from 1941 until 1945 was, of course, not only acceptable, but encouraged. So you know, a, a lot of changing of positions had had to go on, but it wasn't theoretically illegal to be a communist at, at this point. And in 1943, Julius and Ethel's first child is born, Michael, who is quite a challenging boy. Yes. And, and of course, in 43, it's mid-war. And Michael is just a difficult, difficult and sickly baby. And he's very, very demanding of Ethel. Ethel was born with scoliosis. And every so often that flared up and not sleeping properly and worrying about this child 
caused a, a severe flare-up. And scoliosis wasn't just a question of pain in her back. She had serious migraines. And although they could barely afford it, they needed some kind of household help at this point. And Ethel was so determined to be a better, more attentive mother than her own mother had been, that having this difficult, challenging child, uh, who obviously was super bright and super demanding, made life extremely difficult for her, and she didn't know where to turn. Her mother was no help in these circumstances, so she tried to educate herself. She took subscriptions to Parents Magazine. She read everything she could. She went on mothering courses. She went on music education courses, thinking if she learnt the guitar, she could teach him. She tried her damnedest. And times were tough because Julius was away. They didn't have much money. And anyone who's been kept awake with a baby at night knows how utterly debilitating that is. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yes, I can remember <laughs> uh, that with, with my young ones. Now, tell me how the relationship is with. Ethel's brother, David, and his wife, Ruth? Well, having read the letters at Boston University, um, which the FBI confiscated, of course, and what they reveal is that Ruth, too, like Ethel, was a bright young thing, but she had obviously been attracted to chubby, cute-faced David um, they also were childhood sweethearts. And Ruth gave up any hope of college to be a good wife and mother. And they looked up to Ethel and Julius. It appears as if Ethel and Julius were really the the golden older brother and older sister-in-law. And I think what I find extraordinary is here are these two women, Ruth and Ethel, neither of whom went to college, both of whom were the brighter halves of the partnership, and both of whom subsumed everything into their children and family life, but with very different outcomes as to how they did that. But they put children and family above absolutely everything. And I think initially what you see in these letters is Ruth, because David was sent away to work, Ruth spent as much time as she could with F, as she called her, F and Julius, and she loved listening to records. She loved going about with them. She thought Michael was the most adorable, clever, cute baby and they wrote loving communist letters to each other about how society will change soon and there won't be a need for money and material possessions and won't this be a wonderful society. They were avid communists and, you know, David would sign off with all the love that Marx can send you. And 
in addition to being avid communists, there was an element of envy. I hesitate to say jealousy, but deep envy that Ethel and Julius had this very bright boy and Ruth was trying to get pregnant. And would their children be as clever and as amazing and as wonderful And I think Ruth was seriously concerned that maybe they wouldn't. So she's reassuring David, don't worry, our children will take after you. And won't that be amazing? It it was at one level a very genuine brother-sister friendship. But at another level, you see deep fear and envy that Ethel, who was a singer and who was clever, somehow had this additional level of education that had been denied Ruth, who came from an even more impoverished family and was unable to rise above her circumstances. How does Julius get involved in espionage? How how does that start? Clearly, it was something that was deep in Julius's psyche And as soon as Russia was an ally, he made himself known to various key Russians at at rallies, pro-Soviet rallies. It wasn't difficult. He made it known that he knew people. I mean, they were all his friends from um, City College who were engineers, who many of whom were now in government positions. He had something to offer, not that he directly had much to offer, but he was able to introduce his friends who also felt very passionately that Russia, as an ally, needed to be helped. So having recruited um, some of his friends to supply information and documents and photocopy information, Julius, as a spying recruiter, was um, heavily overworked. And what you see from the latest information coming out of KGB files. And and this um, Russian defector, Vasiliev, is one of these who is aware of this. Julius was actually stood down at one point because it was believed that um, he was taking on too much and that these constant charges against him indicated that perhaps he was a weak link and they did not want him involved. So probably he was able to, um, as soon as his brother-in-law David went off to Los Alamos, he would have told somebody, his, his Soviet handler, that this was key information that he thought he was able to give. But then in 1945, at the critical moment, it appears that Julius was not actually working for the Soviets. But he had been very excited when he learnt that um, his brother-in-law, David, was working on the Manhattan Project, albeit in a lowly position as a machinist and not with great um, talent, but he thought he was offering something very important to the Russians in terms of telling them that David was at Los Alamos. Of course, the Russians already knew about the project, which they called Enormos. Um, So it wasn't as if he was telling them something that they didn't know. And it's arguable 
how much Julius did from then on, because Ruth went down to Albuquerque to be close to David. They wanted to start a family and Ruth was lonely on her own. So um, Ruth at this point, with her keenness, as David's keenness to help the Russians, was probably the link um, for the Soviets in passing on such information as David was able to give them. Anne's publishers, Orion Books, have kindly given us three copies to give away to our listeners. There'll be details of how to win a copy at the end of this episode. Now, back to the interview. The atom bomb is revealed in August. Uh, the war ends in September 1945. But I, I think Julius is struggling to get work. And obviously, Ethel is very focused on on two children because I think Robbie is he's born. Well, he, he's born in 47, isn't he? Yes. And is always a much easier child. But nonetheless, she now has two. Julius, who is in... New York, Manhattan, the whole time through, throughout this, sets up his own company, a sort of army surplus company with some repairs and machine work. And he tries to get equipment from um, army surplus from his contacts, but they really struggle to fulfill orders, to make enough money. So again, very, very little spare cash. Um, and after the war, David comes to work for them for, for a short time. And that's not successful because they don't get on. And he's they accused. Uh, Julius accuses David of being lazy, of not turning up. And David is not earning enough. So uh, the relationship between the brother and brother-in-law sours. And at the same time, there just isn't money. Yeah, and I think that the the business that Julius has started, David is an investor. Yes, in, in that as well, and the, and would the, like to get his money out, but can't because there isn't spare cash. Yeah, yeah. So as you say, that the relationship definitely sours there, but also it, it the FBI are starting to get on the trail as well. Yes. And David did something that many people who worked at Los Alamos did. He stole some uranium. Apparently, it made a very attractive ashtray. Um, And he thinks at first they're just coming to visit him uh, for his uranium. So he wraps it in a sock and throws it in the river. But of course, it was more than that, because the chain of events that leads to his arrest is the East German um, scientist, Klaus Fuchs, who's working in London. And they, the, the um, trail starts with Klaus Fuchs, who admits his guilt. And he confesses and he names names. And he actually, although he is sentenced, he only serves nine years in the end. But his confession, and this is the intriguing part, everybody who's arrested names names. So Klaus Fuchs names um, Harry Gold, who was a courier 
it was also an unreliable um, you know, serial liar, but he names eventually David and Ruth Greenglass. So that's how the trail leads to them because he met them in Albuquerque and he has um, he recognizes them. So as soon as they're arrested, they name Julius and Ethel and try to say that Ethel and Julius were responsible not only for recruiting them, but played a much greater role than clearly they did. So eventually, Julius and Ethel are arrested, even though there is never evidence against Ethel. She's arrested slightly later, and it's always quite clear that the evidence against Ethel was weak, so they invented it. They used her as a lever because they couldn't believe that since everyone else who was arrested had always talked and named names, Julius, who after all was aspiring recruiter, was bound to name names. So some of his spying fled and got away in time. But Julius and Ethel decided that actually the buck stops here. They were going to protest their innocence. And they never named names. But it went from bad to worse because, of course, once they realized that they didn't have enough evidence against Ethel, they persuaded David and Ruth to perjure themselves and to invent evidence. And there was then a chain of invented evidence that was produced at their trial in order to try and persuade them to talk. Yeah, and that this is the really what the the key part here because you know J. Edgar Hoover, who's the head of the FBI, suggests taking up proceedings against Ethel to try and get Julius to talk. And as you say, what happens is the FBI coach David and Ruth Greenglass in various pieces of incriminating made-up evidence in in the court case. And it's clear that there isn't strong evidence against Ethel, although being the wife of Julius, she must have known that the espionage was going on. You can't imagine that being completely compartmentalised. No, and, and I really don't pretend to. Um, you know, my my main point is that I'm writing... The story of Ethel. I'm not relitigating the Rosenberg trial. And I've accepted, you know, that she knew and understood and encouraged Julius, who was the man she loved. But um, I think we must talk about the trial in detail because it was a travesty of justice. But, you know, in America, people aren't or shouldn't be criminalized for their thoughts or even their knowledge. It's only their actions. So, you know, yes, Ethel knew, but that's not illegal. So they, the charge was conspiracy to commit espionage. Now, conspiracy is really easy to prove because actually all you have to prove is that they talk to each other. So, of course, they talk to each other about this. We don't know their pillow talk. So I don't know the extent to which Ethel knew absolutely everything, but it's undeniable she was aware of what her husband was doing. 
Um, however, they were not charged with treason because Russia was an ally at the time and because the rules in a treason trial are much tougher. You have to produce two pieces of evidence and it's it, it's really a, a, a completely different trial. But the judge repeatedly introduced the word and the prosecution introduced the idea that they were treasonable, that they were betraying their country. And the prosecution kept using the word treason so that the jury believed they were trying these people for treason. And that, of course, was extremely damaging. The the other point is that many of the exhibits introduced into this 18-day trial were really stage props because, of course, any information that it was alleged had been sent to the Soviet Union no longer existed. So the prosecution invented a jello box, which was cut in a particular way, which it said was a recognition signal. Now, if that had been used, it was probably used by Ruth in Albuquerque. It wasn't necessarily invented by Julius, let alone Ethel, in their flat in New York. Things like that are, you know, and the lens mold sketch that David was apparently alleged to have produced for Julius, he might have produced some kind of elementary lens mold sketch in, in early 1945 and given it to Harry Gold. But the idea that um, David, who flunked all his exams, could in 1951 produce this very sophisticated version of a lens mold unless he had been coached was ridiculous. But the real evidence at the trial that caught Ethel because they needed to prove an action was that she had typed up his notes. Now, this has been shown subsequently to be perjury because David never mentioned it in his grand jury testimony. The grand jury is before the trial, where, in fact, David said, um, oh, leave my sister out of it. Honestly, it's not just because she's my sister. She had nothing to do with it. She didn't do anything. And then suddenly Ruth invented this story that she remembered Ethel bringing out the typewriter, the typewriter that I mentioned earlier, where she had learnt to be a secretary and had helped Julius pass his exams, now was used against her. Apparently, she typed up these notes that were sent to the Soviets. But this was dramatic perjury, which when David was released. Did you know that your account with Amazon can help me get new guests on the show? Just search for Cold War Conversations on Amazon and leave a review for the podcast. Thank you. Was shown to be part of his plea bargain if Ruth, who was clearly involved in espionage in Albuquerque and passing on information, but she was never charged, never indicted, never faced a jury, and she was able to stay at home looking after the children, and David had a much lesser sentence. And so this was part of their deal with the FBI that actually um, they would invent this story. And it was the typing that was invented that was the perjury. I mean, there's much more that I could say about the mistrial, the way the um, 
judge directed the jury to find them guilty of, of treason. His summing up was blatantly sexist, blaming Ethel because she was three years older. The fact that the prosecution had indulged in ex-party discussions with the judge, all of it is just such a travesty of justice that, of course, you know, Ethel never should have been found guilty or if she was guilty of being complicit to the conspiracy because she knew she would have been given a few years. But to accuse her of being criminally complicit to espionage is far from the truth. It is obvious from the evidence and certainly the the later transcripts that 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 appear after well well after the 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 trial that the green glasses are equally complicit in this conspiracy and should have been prosecuted as well and as you say there's the plea bargaining there but i think one of the real tragedies is how the green glass family sort of close in on themselves and leave ethel to be killed. Uh, be killed, essentially, yeah. Precisely. And David showed no remorse at all. When he emerged from prison and um, did an interview, he said, well, I sleep with my wife, not my sister. And she was the mother of my children. I, I sleep very easy at night. They believed Ethel was stupid not to name names. But she wasn't going to put other people through what they were being put through. And she very genuinely believed that she was not involved in espionage and couldn't bring herself to admit to doing something that she hadn't done. I mean, it's. I go back to my other point. It's not illegal for people to have ideas, to think or to have knowledge And Ethel knew that that was not illegal. Once you start prosecuting people for their thoughts, there's really no end to where it could go. And so Ethel probably was ill-advised to take the Fifth Amendment repeatedly because she felt she was on trial for being a communist, and to an extent she was. Um, So she denied any knowledge of the Communist Party Clearly, we can see today she'd have been much better advised to be upfront. Yes, I believe in communism. Yes, I have been a member of the Communist Party because she probably wasn't formally a member anymore. Instead of taking the Fifth Amendment constantly because it was believed that she was shifty, that she was not telling the truth. Yeah, and I think that this is one of the other interesting things I I found in, in the book is the the relative weakness of her legal team. Yes, of course, of course, but that's not surprising. Nobody would take on the case. Everybody ran scared. So I I think Manny Block was really a bit of a hero even to take it on because nobody else would. Yeah, I found it a really interesting contrast versus the Rudolf Abel case where Obviously, listeners will be familiar with the Bridge of Spies movie where that spy was offered top-notch legal (laughs) defence 
and although um, his, you know, the the lawyer didn't want to take it, he did end up taking it. And with the the Rosenbergs, it was, you know, it it was just contrived to get this prosecution. I mean, yeah. as you said, the judge was leading the jury. The prosecution weren't sharing some evidence that they or some information that they discovered with the defence. Uh, but at that time, within law, I don't think they had to. Do you, do you mean the grand jury information or Venona? Yes, yeah, the grand, the grand jury information, because yes. obviously Venona w- would not have been uh, allowed to have been disclosed at this point. Yes. I think it's what I, I come back to. I said at the beginning, there is something about the Rosenbergs being a husband and wife that felt to be so contrary to American ideals of here are these immigrants, they should be grateful for everything we've given them to live in this country, and and yet this woman is going against the rules of being a good mother, a good housewife. She's breaking every notion we have of the American dream. There was something in Ethel and Julius's story that the FBI felt and and the government had to go along with, it felt so contrary to notions of American motherhood, of the American dream, of America being a melting pot and welcome to immigrants, that they had to be punished and they had to be seen to be punished. And And the word I think we haven't really talked about is fear, because of this fear that really was verging on hysteria, that if you let them get away with this, where on earth will it lead you? And and you see that in, in Eisenhower's fear. I mean, this great military commander who'd shown such strength on the field is absolutely horrified at the prospect of having to cave in to what would be seen as giving in to the communists. He had to be shown to be strong. And particularly because in 1950, there was the Korean War. And so Ethel was blamed for the Korean War because it was believed that this is what gave the communist forces their strength. So it's it's much more than I mean, the subtitle of my book is a Cold War tragedy in America. It's called an American tragedy. It, it's much more than an ordinary Cold War case. Uh, it really is something that excites people beyond normal levels of punishment for a crime, let alone punishment to fit the crime. Because, you know, Ethel was punished not just for the crime. Ethel was punished for being a woman. Ethel was punished for being three years older than her husband. Ethel was accused of being the master and driving Julius as her slave. I mean, there were extraordinary notions of pop psychology about her. And that's why she's become such an icon. That's why you still read about her in novels constantly and plays and paintings and and books. You know, people cannot quite understand why this ordinary housewife who wanted to be a singer and and a dancer and who supported her husband. After all, that was what 1950s housewives were meant to do. She loved her, her husband, but she detested the slipperiness, the deceitfulness of 
the Greenglass family into which she was born. And that's really what drove her at the end. This notion that a family could betray each other and do so through lying and perjury, even though it resulted in death, is is really a, a staggering determination to live three years in isolation in prison. And that links it to Ethel's determination right at the beginning. We briefly touched on Venona there. Now, Venona were the American decoding of Soviet messaging that had been going on in the 1940s from from the US to the to the Soviet Union and what do the Venona decrypts say about Ethel's role well they're absolutely fascinating i mean they they haven't all been decrypted and the project has closed now only two referred to Ethel only one mentioned Ethel by name Um, One should say that it was the knowledge of the Venona um, cables that led the trail to Klaus Fuchs in the first place and Fuchs and Gold and um, the Green Glasses. So they were incredibly important, but they didn't want to reveal them publicly because they hoped that um, they could be useful in leading to more names. Um, what do they tell us so much? So they tell us that Ethel did not have a code name. Everybody else who was dealing with the KGB had a code name. Um, they describe Ethel as an intelligent woman. I, I think there is one other mention of Ethel as liberal's wife, but not with her own name. Um, clearly, uh, nobody has ever said that Ethel was dealing directly with the um, KGB. So, um, you know, it was just a reference to Ethel. But the one that people get so exercised about is which says that Julius and Ethel recommend Ruth, um, Ruth Greenglass, as a clever and intelligent woman. So was that Ethel deliberately inveigling Ruth into spying or is it simply a question of saying Julius recommended Ruth? And by the way, his wife, too, thinks she's clever as extra emphasis. You could argue it both ways. Um, and I'm prepared to say, you know, even if you accept that that's Ethel recommending Ruth as a spy, um, it's not evidence of her involvement actually in spying. Um, So the Venona cables tell you so much. But for me, in a way, one of the most significant aspects is that the two men who worked on decoding them, Gardner and Lamfair, were so appalled that their work had led to the electrocution of a woman that they actually wrote to the government begging this not to happen. They were the people who really knew what was in the Venona cables, and they knew their decryption did not mean that Ethel deserved to be electrocuted. So I find that staggering. That does say something. That really does say something there. One one of the things I really liked in the book were, were the photos in there because the, the only or most of the photos that you see of Ethel are the mugshots where 
you can understand she's not looking particularly happy or at her best. Isn't it unimaginable for most of us who grow up constructing our childhood by looking back at photos of when we were three, when we were five, when we were a baby, with our parents looking adoringly at us. So all those photographs were taken by the FBI and Ethel's two sons have grown up with nothing like that at all. And yet some people, as they've... um, grown up have realized they're in possession of photos and have sent them back to the two sons who are now um, Robert and Michael Mirapol. And I've got a couple of those in the book. One of them shows Ethel in Amdram. I mean, that was what she really loved and would have liked to have been an actress. And the other one, which is my favorite photograph of all, shows Ethel as an adoring mother on the beach cradling her toddler. and. You know, I am trying to reset the image because I just don't believe that extremism enlightens anything. I don't think extremism wins any arguments. And we really have to try and make a nuanced portrait of this complex, arguably flawed woman whose most important goal in life was to be a good mother by the time that her two sons were born. So I would say from 1943 onwards, to be a good wife, as she perceived it, and that meant loyally supporting her husband and not betraying him. Of course, she knew and understood and encouraged Julius in what he was doing. But um, I, I think we have to try and hold more than one idea in our head that this woman can be both things. I don't think communism was the main focus of her life in, in the last 10 years. And I think we need to try and see how the most important thing for her was to leave her sons a good legacy of the correct way to behave, not to betray people like the green glasses had done, but to be as solid in your support for people who you believe are doing the right thing. And that's why she would not name names. And that's why ultimately she went to her barbaric death and was electrocuted. Yeah, because the FBI were waiting even on execution day for either Julius or her to name names, and that would have stopped their execution. Arguably. Arguably, okay. (laughs) I, I, I don't know, actually. It might have stopped Ethel's because I, you know, when you look at the tangle that the FBI and government got into as to which one would be executed first, and they worried if they executed Ethel first and then Julius confessed, how on earth could they execute a mother and then allow um, a father to live? That would be terribly unpopular. So I don't think it was a given that even naming names would have stopped the execution. But you're right, it it might have done. And why do you think Ethel's story matters? And why are we looking at this history now? I think it really matters because when a government gives way to fear and or hysteria, 
and willingly kills one of its subjects and sees them as expendable in the greater good. This argument that because they knew about Venona, the um, means justified the ends. I, I think as citizens, we all need to be wary of that. And her story is resonant today, just as it was 70 years ago. And we can look at the degree of guilt and complicity and argue um, till the cows come home. But I nonetheless still think it's really important and resonant to look at how dangerous that is when a government caves in to fear and allows one of its subjects to be killed on the basis of evidence that it knows is manufactured. So, I mean, my plea is please read my book and make up your own minds. And I would echo that. The book is called Ethel Rosenberg, A Cold War Tragedy. In the US, it's Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy. And there's a lot more in the book that we haven't covered in this interview. So if you're interested in the case and you want to hear another side to the Rosenberg story and particularly Ethel's story, I would recommend that you that you read this book. And publishers Orion Books have kindly let us have three copies of Ethel Rosenberg to give away. If you want to learn more, go to the episode notes at coldwarconversations.com slash episode 184. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Mark Labance, Frederick Esposito, Darren Hughes, Jim Black, Ryan Vlaming, Stephen Kavalich, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.